Rational discussion, common sense, open debate, RCR, Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan. I want to welcome to Reality Check Radio now for um, a, a good chat, Catherine Ennis-Carter, highly experienced senior international consultant specializing in governance and public management. There's a lot to talk about in that space. And uh, Catherine will, I guess, give us a, a, a bit of a, a rundown of what she's been doing, particularly uh, overseas to do her work. So she's come in and out of the country over enough of a period of time let's say, to see any changes that might have occurred measured against her baseline of all that experience. So Catherine Ennis-Carter is with us. Catherine, welcome to Reality Check Radio. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me on. All right, where to start? Um, I think the most interesting part of this will be when you take us inside the disinformation project um, meeting or event that you attended what about nearly two months ago, getting on for that in Wellington? I'm going to be fascinated to hear that. But first of all, just just tell us uh, what kind of work you've been doing and, and how that body of work you think um, will, will help us understand, uh, I guess, how someone with experience in your field sees how it was, what it's evolved to, how it is now, and measuring it off against your experience with other countries. So uh, feel free to, to start there. Well, um, I started my career in the New Zealand uh, public service. So I was uh, in middle and then senior management in both central and uh, local government roles. Uh, and then I moved into consulting and became a, a consultant to um, government uh, departments and to local government for a few years. And then I had the opportunity to uh, work internationally and started doing that uh, um, about 23 years ago. Uh, so for the last 20 odd years, I've been working internationally. Um, and uh, the work that I've done has mostly been running large projects uh, funded by international donor agencies like the World Bank or the European Union, or um, I've done quite a few projects for uh, the British and Foreign Commonwealth Office. And um, uh the projects that I've led have mostly been in that governance and public management sphere. So some of them have been about uh, strategic management or uh, government budgeting or um, planning, planning for development purposes. Um, some of them have been specific on specific areas like uh, poverty reduction or policy development in, in specific areas. So mostly I've um, been leading those projects um, or uh, where I haven't been the project leader, I've had lead consultant ro roles. Okay, and, and what are some of those countries? I mean, who, who have you been dealing with? Degree of difficulty? Um, well, I've worked um, in uh, a couple of the Pacific Islands, Fiji and the Solomon Islands, um, but most of the work that I've done uh, has been in the Northern Hemisphere, so I've worked in countries in the Middle East, um, like uh, Turkey and in the Caucasus. I spent five years in Armenia, which is an ex-Soviet country. Um, I've worked in Jamaica, in the Caribbean. I've worked in um, uh, uh, Ghana and Nigeria in Africa, and also in Southeast Asia, Vietnam. Uh, um. <laughs> what an awesome lineup. Wow. Yes, and, and quite diverse. 
which has been really interesting. Any standouts there? Because you're dealing with some countries there with extreme levels of poverty, right? Yes, very much so. So Pakistan, <clears throat> I was leading a uh, policy development project there for the European Union on uh, working with Sindh province, which is one of the poorest provinces in Pakistan, to develop a, a whole new government, uh, government policy on uh, reducing poverty. So that was extremely interesting and meaningful because we were trying to do something for um, uh, the extremes of uh, really poor people in Pakistan. And uh, Pakistan is a, is a highly interesting government. <laughs> From what respect? I know Imran Khan got sort of run out and almost, you know, someone tried to, as they do, uh, you know, attempt to assassinate him. It's pretty rough going. And he's a, uh, you know, a hero in Pakistan, as I understand it because of his cricketing background and all of that. So um, things can go south pretty quickly in a country like Pakistan, obviously. Very much so. And uh, basically when people ask me about the different countries that I've worked in, they often ask, you know, what's the level of corruption that you've seen? I've found that corruption, as we understand it in the Western world, isn't a, really a very useful term to use because um uh, every country is is corrupt in, in its own way, and um, in most developing countries, the corruption operates more as uh, a kind of patronage network, and you see that all over the place in the Middle East, um, countries like uh, Pakistan, South Asia, um, in Africa with their tribal leaders. Um, but basically, everything works on patronage and the influence of um, vested interests. And, a, yep, carry on, sorry. Um, and so this became increasingly um, obvious to me during my 20-odd years of, of working in countries like this. And so I have very much um, moved on from being the naive New Zealander that I was when I started this international work. And when I left New Zealand to work overseas, I was very proud of New Zealand governance and how things operated in New Zealand. I thought our government was very accountable. Um, and uh, so, unfortunately, I'm not so impressed having come back to New Zealand. Oh, dear. I, when you were explaining the, the, you know, the patronage system of corruption, I was wondering, because we have surveys here that tell us that we're the least corrupt country in the world. Uh, I don't know if anyone believes that because really what you're saying is cultures find their own way to, you know, the, the vehicle for corruption, whatever works there. But do we have a kind of patronage system here? Because a small population and only so many jobs and many of them controlled by government, and this is where we're sort of back to this, that um, you can reward people for scratching your back quite easily. And that, that is patronage in the end, isn't it? Yes, well, um, <clears throat> if let me let me take two um, contrasting examples of of corruption in in two of the countries I've worked. So Pakistan, we talked about a moment ago. Um, the government in Pakistan is controlled by dynasty politics. So the people who end up in power are basically the large uh, feudal land owning 
uh, farmers. It's a it's a feudal economy. So those dynasty families, like uh, Benazir Bhutto, she was from one of those large landowning families. Um, so they basically run the show, and several of those families kind of alternate in governance. So you've had the Bhutto's and the Sharifs, and Imran Khan um, was a bit unusual in that he managed to uh, get into government. And the other factor that's important in Pakistan is that the army controls everything. So um, whoever the army decides to support um, usually uh, gets into government. And so, you know, you've got factors there that are very different, for example, to how New Zealand operates. And in Vietnam, it interested me there that um, there was corruption was endemic, but basically it's it it's, it's at all levels and mm. everybody has a go. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> Why not? So, <laughs> Might as well be in. So my project director in the Ministry of Finance there, uh, she was a, a official of the Ministry of Finance, and she complained to me that um, the uh, the person who was uh, senior in charge of the ministry had installed his niece in the accounts department and that she was siphoning off all the money from our project in his direction rather than spreading it around. Which okay. is, <laughs> and yeah. somehow I was supposed to fix this. So it's <laughs> very interesting experiences. Okay, but uh, you know, I just wonder again if if we if we can be so secure in thinking that we're sort of squeaky clean. Um, um, no, we can't be because um, one thing that's very clear to me, having worked overseas for so many years, is that um, every government is subject to huge international um, lobbying. And, um, you know, we've been talking about lobbying recently. It's been in the, in the press about why have lobbyists become so important in New Zealand. But when you consider um, very large international commercial vested interests, um, they are lobbying and influencing all governments um, to their agenda. And many of them ha have an asset base that's, you know, many, many times the size of the New Zealand government or even the American government. Um, so they can, they can do a lot. Pfizer? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the owners of Pfizer? Yes. It's further up the chain, doesn't it? Yes. And um, large international uh, big food corporates, um, yeah. as well as big pharma. And of then, then of course, you know, big oil, big banking, um, all these um, commercial entities, and the people who own them, who manage to stay mostly behind the scenes. Yeah, anonymous almost to the public, mm. anyway. Yes, they operate through their institutions. Yeah. All right. So you're coming and going from New Zealand a lot over numerous decades, a couple of decades at least. So you, you, you're sort of um, in another country doing doing the work you do, then you're back to, you know, back home. And, you know, I guess a lot of the time it just felt like, yeah, I'm back home, same old Kiwi, that's what I love. But did you have you noticed any, and I know COVID was in the way as well, but have you noticed any change um, coming back in regularly over time in the New Zealand that that you recognise um, you know, compared to back then now 
Has there been a change? I'm just what I'm asking is: has there been a change that you've noticed? Um, well, I think um, what everybody has noticed is that um, <clears throat> there's a a a leveling out of any difference between political parties. So basically, you know, we're getting the same policies and the same uh, the same approaches. And every year, every year that there's an election, the parties will tell you that um, you know they're different and they're going to make big changes and and so on. But basically, it's um, life on Mars continues as the same. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, I think the other thing that I would draw attention to is that uh, because uh, since the whole um, neoclassical um, uh, economics movement has basically taken over um, not only economic thinking but how government operates. Um, so, and associated with that, of course, has been the privatisation agenda. So we've seen a transfer of assets and interest um, and finances and funding um, going from government itself um, and many of the policies that were associated with that to uh, the private sector. And so now core government largely consists of an army of um, uh, procurement um, officers overseeing uh, contracts with the private sector, uh, policy analysts and so-called communications specialists. And so I think everybody, if they thought about it, could also testify to the increase in spin that we've seen. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah huge increase. Yes. And we know that they are in the hundreds and hundreds in the government, Yes, right? yes, yes. <laughs> um, what, the people that used to be mostly in government were uh, mostly, you know, if we go back to the 70s and the early 80s, for example, um, were people in operational positions, you know, who were involved in delivering services and what have you. Mm. Um, but there's been a considerable change. Yeah, um, th that has been noticeable, I guess, to people who are in the know. But do you think that's been noticeable to the public? Uh, they're maybe not so aware of what's uh, taken place. Because as you are talking well, there, I was remembering we used to have the Ministry of Works and we used to have all these entities that if someone decided to do something, they could like click their fingers and the next day it's happening. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, so now you can't have that because you've got to go and negotiate um, amendments to contracts or um, a provision of emergency services or whatever with the private sector. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's been a factor. But also I think um, along with the, the increase in spin, there's, there's also um, an increasing kind of creeping um, groupthink and, um, and associated with that. Now we're seeing, uh, I think, a concerning level of increasing censorship. And most people are not really aware of that um, because they're, you know, getting on with their everyday lives. And it's like the boiling the frog syndrome, things that are happening gradually over, you know, three decades. Uh, you know, people adjust as time goes on and, and you know, don't realise what a contrast this is to what used to be. 
Yeah, so the, is that uh, as a result of that uh, sort of white anting of the operational um, doing kind of um, uh, public service to what you describe now, is that naturally what they're going to default to? Uh, uh, yes, I think so. And also um, uh, I think over time the uh, the demographic of people who are in government has got increasingly younger um, so you've got a lot of people now who are going into government straight out of university, and uh, I'm told that a large percentage of, of um, government officials are now in their 30s, so are, are in their 30s, compared yeah. to, um, I'd venture to suggest, we, we had a, a broader um, level of experience before. Well, I remember being 30, and, I mean, it's not that young, but you haven't um, crammed much in. You haven't taken too many hits. Um, yes. You don't know really which way is up. And if you've still got that idealism of youth without the experience that, and want to apply to everybody, that, that might not be so good. Um, well, yes. I mean, there's nothing wrong with youth and skills and new ideas. Yeah, but when it's all of them, when, when it's the place is maxed out with them, a disproportionate number, really. Yes. Um, and also, uh, basically what we have in government now is uh, a whole cadre of people who've been basically co-opted into the, um, the neoliberal, neoclassical economics thinking. And so there's a huge level of group think about all of that. What about their social attitudes, though? Because it seems that, um, um, that well, how would you describe them? I guess you'd call them progressive slash liberal, but they're not really because they don't tolerate any other or don't seem to in the group think. Uh, maybe some individuals uh, struggle with this, but in the group think they don't tolerate any other view. Really, it's well, so. yes. I mean, that's that's one of the concerning things. Um, I, a great friend of mine was um, Graham Butterworth, um, who died a few years ago. Quite a well-known New Zealand historian, and one of the one of his quotable quotes that I remember was. Uh, he said to me, we were talking about politics and, and um, government and so on, and he said, never underestimate the usefulness of hypocrisy. And uh, I see a lot of that happening because people are, you know, talking about diversity, um, but they don't want a diversity of opinion. Hmm. Um, you know, how do you have inclusiveness when you uh, mandate uh, and exclude a, um, a whole uh, sector of society from participating uh, or even having access to public space. How, how is that inclusive? Um, you know, where's the inclusiveness in, in not allowing any questioning um, of uh, some of the things that have gone on in the last three years? I think um, uh, the dis disinformation project is particularly interesting because these are uh, fascinating um upside-down psychology uh, that's going on there. Um, and these people are establishing themselves um, not only as the, um, the information police, um, but also the thought police. So, you know, that's what I mean, some sort of level of censorship that we're seeing. Um, you know, there, there is uh, an, a kind of an official orthodoxy um, that's developed about views that are acceptable and views that are unacceptable. 
And the disinformation project itself has been set up on the basis that there is a there is such a thing as truth, um, which for the purposes of which that project was largely set up, um, is the official government narrative. And anything else is misinformation or disinformation. So that's terribly worrying, and it's worrying when that unit is uh, supposed to be an uh, academic research unit. What seems to be missing is um, I think that what we're seeing now is a relatively poor level of scholarship um, and a poor level of critical analysis um, that's permeating the, the universities um, yeah. as, as well as uh, the government bureaucracy. And it's interesting because you mentioned, uh, you know, truth. What is truth? And I mean, this is not the disinformation project necessarily saying this, but it seems that there's been um, no uh, identification by them of of a group that is pushing misinformation and non-truth. And that is, you know, going back to what happened at Albert Park and this whole question of 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 gender and and sex. And there's no disinformation project pronouncement on trying to say that a man's a woman and a woman's a man and it's a fact is not called out. And that that's the upside down world. That that's clown world. That that's at the limits of of ridiculousness, you know? Well, um, that's, you know, I mean, that's very interesting what, what happened um, there because um, I looked at the, uh, some of the videos and the, and the pictures and um, I found um, the, the, the visual pictures of um, a very small woman. You know, she's tiny, five foot one. That's about the same height as me. And um, I know what I feel like, you know, in large, aggressive uh, crowds, and she was there on her own with just a few of her own security team. And the, and it's hard to deny that that crowd was very aggressive. And so how do you justify, you know, violent intimidation um, taking place there? Um, and that's okay uh, because you don't want this woman to speak because she's been labelled as a, a anti-trans um, but some of the things that she's, she was trying to speak about, as far as I can discern, were things like, um, you know, all the, all the things that uh, a few years ago would have, would have been considered women's rights. Mm. Um, and, you know, just to think of a few of them, um, why um, are women and women's biological um uh, makeup uh, being excluded from uh, the terminology somehow, you know, um, female is being written out of the um, um, out of the words that are supposed to be used. So, you know, we've got ridiculous stuff like pregnant persons, um, people with cervixes, um, birthing individuals, people who menstruate. Yes, and chest feeders. I mean, how ridiculous is this? It even sounds <laughs> sort of weird. Yeah. Well, yes, but why? Why? Um, and, you know, the argument is, oh, well, you know, because um, 
we we don't want to offend or discriminate against trans people. Um, okay, that's fine. I don't think most New Zealanders actually do. Well, I, I don't know anyone who's ever done that, and um, I don't know who the, these marauding groups that do this are. I've lived in central Auckland for four years. I never saw any of it, and I was out there every day. So either this is imaginary or it's happening in pockets that no one is aware of. So basically it's a bluff. Well, it's it, it's either a bluff or it's some form of, it's almost like a form of, community hysteria um oh, yeah. that, that, that is a phenomenon thing. isn't it hysteria it, it can is, move through a community yeah it is a very interesting phenomenon um but i think there are serious things that for example um uh the person who was trying to speak at albert park was wanting to draw attention to and one of them is the promotion of um uh the medicalization of um gender transition and, you know, this is being promoted um, to uh, primary school children. And, you know, I think there are legitimate concerns about that. Totally. Um, they're lucky I'm not a father anymore. Well, I'm still a father, but not of school-age kids because if any of that went on, I'd be down the school and wouldn't be very happy about it, actually. Um, but, I mean, that's up to – I mean, pe people have got to – show their opposition to that. Uh, but again, I'll, I'll make the point that there's no disinformation project saying that all this, you know, about feeling so threatened and and all the things that have been, you know, that those counter-protesters were going on about uh, is disinformation. It, it obviously is, but there's no calling out of that side. It's only, it seems to me, the good people that get demonised here. Um, well, I don't know about good um, people, but... Um, well, I mean, okay, the parliamentary protesters, they're all good people. 99.9% .9 of them were just average New Zealanders, beautiful people. Yet they, no, you really? know, uh, they're, they're sinister, they're uh, dark money, uh, ultra-right wing. You know, when yes. you're calling ultra-right wing, you've, you've got, you know, um, Nazi uniforms sort of in in your head. Um, you know, every, every picture, every bit of footage showed that they weren't there. But that doesn't matter. What you see with your eyes is not true anymore. But there's... They'll, so they'll go at them, but the, this other crowd, and they were a crowd at Albert Park, claiming outlandish, unscientific things, which plainly, again, you can see with your eyes, that's not disinformation. No, apparently not. <laughs> yeah, and I know which one I think is disinformation. Okay, yes, let's, go inside, but... let's go inside this event that you went to a few months ago. Mm. Man, I would have liked to have been in there. Um so uh, tell us what happened there and, and kind of take us through it, uh, th take us through it, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, well, my reason for going there was basically to see what um, the people who were leading this um, seminar about countering disinformation were saying everything from, you know, what is disinformation right through to um, what they were saying about it. But um, it was extraordinary. Um, and just um, my first two general impressions um, was that it was scary to be in a room full of such such a level of groupthink. Um, there was there was no questioning um, or even any debate about aspects of um, the the whole COVID nineteen. Uh, response. It was just taken as read that that was all 
um, what the government said and everything the government did was correct and um, the the COVID-19 mRNA uh, vaccine that's not a vaccine was safe and effective and, you know, all of that. So I had expected that there would at least be some debate. Uh, there wasn't. So the group of people that were there were largely uh, government officials who are working in the health area um, and academics mainly from the University of Otago, um, who was uh, putting on this seminar. Um, then there were some, some fairly extraordinary language uh, being used and and this was, and and I found and this is when I realized the extent of international pseudo academic um, work that's being funded globally on this whole thing about countering misinformation and, and disinformation um, so misinformation and disinformation is apparently anything that's contrary to the official narrative um, and um, some of the language that was being used, uh, for example, um, the, the labelling that's gone on um, uh, count to any, used against anybody who has said anything or quest even questioned anything um, about the COVID response is to categorise all of that as misinformation and disinformation, but there are some standard terms that keep on being used basically to dismiss anything that anybody says. Um, so, for example, we've got anti-vax, and so the term anti-vax. So they refuse to distinguish between people who are concerned about the synthetic um, genetic mRNA product um, but not concerned about traditional vaccines that are made from deactivated virus, but they refuse to distinguish that. So everything is anti-vax. If you're anti the COVID virus, you're anti-vax. They've just fallen over completely just right there, and that's only the start. So that that the whole thing's gone off the rails right there, right? Well, that's one of the things. That's what I mean partly about poor level of critical analysis. Um and then, you know, you've got these other terms like vaccine, hesitant, um, conspiracy theorist, um, you know, all these uh, terms that are, are being bandied, have been bandied around, and they're being used to discredit people. So, for example, we saw a um, pretty reprehensible campaign carried out by staff to vilify and condemn anybody who um, has you know, ha has these beliefs or, or is not convinced about the, um, the, the Pfizer vaccine or um, is involved in any way with the so-called freedom groups. All those people were hunted out by the stuffed journalists and vilified and defamed um, during that local government election campaign. They were called dangerous. They were called. They were trying to undermine democracy. They were violent extremists. They were this, that, and um, you know every other term. So, you know, this labelling is is one of the one of the tactics that's being used. Um, and that's a that's a that's a bullying mentality, isn't it? That, it is. It is because it's basically you know if you can dismiss somebody. As either ridiculous conspiracy theorist or 
you know, um, uh, what's concerning is that even people, you know, people are being dissuaded from popping their heads up and asking fairly basic questions because you'll be condemned as an anti-vaxxer or a nutter conspiracy theorist or some kind of dangerous um, extremist. So these labelling terms, um, uh, you know, are, are being used. And in the seminar that we're talking about, the disinformation seminar, uh, another word was used, uh, which fascinated me, because uh, uh, they've decided that the misinformation and disinformation community um, and the mis or disinformation that they're spreading is a contagion. So oh, this, we're like a, a disease, like a yes, disease. Yes. So the misinformation community is a contagion in society now, and it must be addressed through social controls. And I found this fascinating because um, then the rhetoric that was being used by the various presenters started started to talk about how we have to have um, inoculation. Oh, this is getting weird. This is getting serious. inoculation. This again. is getting seriously weird. <laughs> it really is. I mean, if you, if if you, um, I think that's what the Germans did in in the thirties is that they mm-hmm. promoted the Jewish people in movies as vermin. They had endless um, loops in the cinemas of of thousands of rats scurrying away, running away. Yeah. With those pictures. Now, okay, these guys weren't doing that, but to associate people with pathogens that could kill is yes. that's, that's out you, there, man. You, that, you, that is out but, there. But you go on from that to say, okay, what we need is um, uh, psychological um, herd immunity. And we have to have, <laughs> and we achieve that through um, psychological inoculation against misinformation. Isn't brainwashing the other word for that? Um, well, I that at the very least, what they're doing, what they were doing, the, the whole day was basically an exercise in how to make their propaganda more effective. That's right. That's the other side of you know. That's the other way of of looking at it. Honing it down. Yes. So um, there were various techniques that were talked about. The the psychological herd immunity um, idea consists with this inoculation concept, uh, basically consisted of a number of things, apart from uh, labelling and defaming the the misinformation community. um, They were talking about things like um, uh, education, Against misinformation um, and using using various um, tactics of debunking um, and referring to you know the COVID myths. So and they're putting up various examples of how to debunk. Uh, it's, it's interesting that word debunking because that was used a hell of a lot during that period when you know someone would come up with. You know, a credible bit of information, some sort mm-hmm. of study, and then it would instantly be reported as debunked. That word yeah. was used relentlessly. Yes, yes. So examples of um, debunking um, what things that you could use were like, you know, um, uh, referring to um, authorised um, references and 
authorised articles and authorised um, uh, um, publications. So anything that isn't that can't be labelled authorised is therefore wrong and misinformation. And, and who's what does authorised mean? <laughs> I mean, well, who authorises it? That that wasn't defined. But you see, um, actually, if I can just digress for a moment, sure, and just talk about some of the psychological research background um, that's relevant to this, and I want to draw attention to two things, three things. First of all, fear um, is a huge motivator. And, of course, we know that the level of fear that was um, generated about COVID um, was an important um, foundation in then taking the public to the next step, which is, okay, we've got this um, miraculous new vaccine and um, nothing is going to work against uh, COVID. No nothing else is effective. There are no other medications. Uh, we've all got to stay locked up in our houses until we get this vaccine. Um, and so fear um, and using fear as a platform to generate um, legitimacy of these restrictions and so on that we use, uh, that's one thing. But the second thing is... Um, uh, reinforcing the role of authority. And that's very important because um, I don't know whether you know, um, every every psych uh, student um, doing psych stage one is usually told about the Stanley Milgram experiments that were done in the 1960s um, where um, it was established that most people um, will follow instructions um, the research results generated that about 65% of people will always follow instructions if they perceive it to be from an authorised, you know, from an authority figure or authorised person. So they did these terrible experiments using electric shock treatments um, under the guise of education. And um, most people went on administering what they thought were um, electric shocks being given to a person who was a participant in the experiment. Um, and in fact, of course, you know, that wasn't happening, but the research um, subjects were the people who were um, brought into the experiment to, to do the electric shocks. And people kept on doing it, even at a point where this, the, the other person in the next room who was supposed to be receiving these shocks was, you know, screaming in pain. Yeah. So people will continue to follow instructions from authority, even when um, it's in a situation where it's starting to override their own um, instincts or, or moral values. And Stanley Milgram's conclusion from all of that work was that most people um, and don't have the internal resources to resist authority even when they think it's wrong. So in establishing the, um, the, the mandates for the COVID stuff and what I saw in the disinformation project, there's a lot of emphasis on trusting authorities. So you heard this from Jacinda Ardern, we're the, we're the single source of truth. Now, that, that would normally strike terror if a, a politician said that um, should strike terror into the souls of everybody and particularly academics. Since when is, is a government your single source of truth? It's outrageous. Um, and then 
The, um, the third thing is um, the groupthink phenomenon uh, because uh, it's known, and again, you know, there's hordes of psychological experience that have proved this, that people want to be part of the group. It's uncomfortable being different. And so people will go along with what others in the group are doing in order to, you know, to, to stay within the group. And so, again, you can see the messaging that was very effectively used um, during the whole COVID um, three years, uh, you know, with the messaging about uh, the team of 5 million, saving lives, safe and effective, trust the science, um, you know, all of this stuff. So nobody was allowed to say anything different because those were the men. Those were the mantras that everybody was was being given as the messages to follow. In that um, seminar, um, let's call it a seminar, you were obviously observing the <clears throat> personalities of those involved. And I'm wondering if you noticed any anything about them that was different from normal. I mean, did they... You know, did they were they strange in any way? I mean, what you're telling us is sort of weird, but because um, it would surely take a certain kind of personality to really, really buy into this, you have to suspend a lot of, you know, what would be common everyday sense. moral, common sense, moral compass, thinking, conscience, all those sorts of things to yes. really believe that. And it, surely uh, there must be some personality aspects that show through that aren't regular, I, I, I'm thinking. Maybe not, but did you notice anything? Um, not amongst the participants. Um, I think uh, a couple well, the, of the, the people doing the seminar, because, I mean, Kate Hanna was there. Yes. And and I think Paula Penfold, and she made that, um, that, that you know, horrible theory. thing. Um, yes. It's hard to believe a journalist with such a, a reputation supposedly would, would engage in that. I mean... I, I guess the funding was pretty good is the only thing I can put it down to. But but to to be that far down a rabbit hole, you, you, there'd be a reason for that. And there must be some personality um, points that come through. I'm just curious. Um, well, I think um, Kate Hanna has gone um, in, into the extremes of, of this to the point where she sees some extremely bizarre things, um, which most people would, you know, roll their eyes at yeah, or question. Right. But she sees them with such confidence that, um, you know, she's she's being believed and and taken notice of. Um, and for example, in the disinformation seminar, um, another thing that I was going to talk about in terms of tactics is. Um, I talked about the labelling, um, so that there's no there's no critical discernment in this labelling. Um, so, like I said before, if you're um, not worried about most vaccines, but you had concerns about the mRNA um, injection, um, but you're still anti-vax, you know. So they're using these generic terms, but then the second thing is they go on to use these labels for the purpose of misdirection. So um, Kate Hanna's position is that um, misogyny, white supremacy and racism is all deeply embedded in all these misinformation groups, as she calls them. 
And this is just misdirection because then you you can you transport it off off to the um, you know the area where you can you know you can use the most extreme um, things that people might might put on on social media, and then you can say, oh well, you see this is typical. This is all these people are like this. You know they're all violent extremists. They're all misogynists and white supremacists and and you know I mean it it defies basic in things that people could see with their own eyes. For example, the protests at Wellington, um, the Parliament protest. There were an awful lot of people there who were not white, but yet still, you know, they're all branded as white yes, supremacists. That's right, and racists. <laughs> yes, but. Um, you know, you can use misdirection in this way to discredit people by, you know, associating them with something else. Um, again, without being careful of the, um, the the critical analysis that's required and any kind of level of discernment. That's why I get angry that these people call themselves academics. Um, and then, of course, the other tactic that they're using is projection. Um, so saying that the misinformation, uh, disinformation community are doing what they're doing themselves. So, for example, they talked about um, the misinformation groups are creating fear and um, and referencing false experts. Yeah. So the people that they dismiss as false experts are people like, you know, Guy Hatchard, um, uh, you know, who has... Um, uh, considerable reputation as a geneticist and people, you know, that you've, I mean, you've talked to Asim Malhotra. Um, most people know about uh, the original inventor of the mRNA device, um, or original research associated with that, Robert Malone. Hmm. Um, but somehow these people are all false experts. They know less than Kate Hanna. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> Apparently. Apparently. Yes, apparently. And Susie Wiles. I know she's not in there, but yes, the marine well, bio biologist seems to suddenly be an expert on, on everything else, and we don't even know how good of a marine biologist she is. But that's, that's insane when you think about that, that um, you, can, you can be the inventor of it and still know less than some woman that no one's ever heard of in the world sitting on a stage somewhere in Wellington. Yes, and... You're not allowed into the public domain. You, you're not. You can't be interviewed on mainstream media. You know, Robert Malone has been persecuted all all around the world. Um, you know, and lots of other people who've who've tried to speak up. A, a lot of them are, um, you know, very uh, internationally uh, famous uh, scientists or medical experts in their field, and yet. They they apparently know less than Susie Wiles, who stand, stood up recently and said, hey, it's such good news. We've got the new bivalent yes, mRNA mm. combined vaccine and um, it gives you uh, an extra three months of, of protection, even if you've already had four other previous shots. And We've forgotten she, about that. Does she not understand how ridiculous that sounds? you know, calling such a thing. A well, that, that's why I asked that question of you earlier. Is there anything weird about these these people? Because where is your head at? Um, when you, you, can't, you can't read any room when no. you're like that. 
No, but you see, it's a bit like what I was saying before about um, government in most countries um, basically being run and controlled by patronage. So, and what patronage does is um, it it drives ideas, um, but it also enrolls people. So, and people get enrolled in, you know, the patronage system and whoever's in power. And you, you can, I mean, the terrific examples in Africa um, of people like Mugabe who managed to stay in power um, when they're doing outrageous things in their countries simply because of the patronage network that was around them that was in, enrolled in keeping them in, in power, you know, for their own interests. So to a lesser degree, this is partly what's happening um, in New Zealand um, and uh, certainly in, in government and, and some of what government is, is doing um, is that people have been enrolled in this whole um, idea uh, and, you know, about trust the science and therefore the science must be right. Science never can, you know, can never be uh, fallible. Um, this is, you know, these are some of the ridiculous mantras that um, we've had imposed on us during this whole three-year period. And everybody knows, basically, if they go back to their common sense, that it's nonsense. You know, the 20th century is full of all kinds of examples of um, things that science got wrong and um, products that were uh, taken off the market because they were shown to be um, either ineffective or, or dangerous. But yet suddenly science is, is infallible. Science is our new god in society. That's an interesting um, uh, point because I, I know that, you know, there there is debate about whether, uh, well, scientism, I think it's uh, referred to as, is like a religion replacement, you know, that um, it fulfills the same uh, inner need, if, if we all have that. Um, and but it detaches itself from anything supernatural. Yes. Well, um, Guy Hatchard has consistently made the point that um, one of the things to be most concerned about in terms of the genetic aspects of the mRNA developments, um, and, you know, I don't want to get into transhumanism, but mm, mm. Um, other things that are, you know, taking place within the whole biotechnology field. Um you know, is uh, the lack of respect or lack of concern for, you know, the the, the basic humanity. Well, um, yeah, I've talked to Guy about that, and you could actually make an argument, and for some this might be a bit out there, but it's like some something or someone's trying to bury the actual human or, or change the form of the human out of the human into something else, like... I don't know, from some sort of deep self-loathing or who knows where it comes from. But when you look at the gender side of it, trying to basically erase the female, you know, erase it like it doesn't exist uh, and, and turn it into something else. Um, it, when you're getting to the level of gene, um, um, what, software almost, um, powering your vaccines and, and medicine, going to a cell programming level then you know what, what are you doing to the dna so perhaps these people 
or in the thinking of these people in this group think is some sort of loathing for the human being. I mean, that's a that's a question we 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 can ask, isn't it? It is a question to ask, but I um, myself, I don't think that's um, the right question to ask. I think what's okay. happening is more that you've got a whole lot of um, within the medical establishment, for example. I know um, some people were so uh, impressed about this new mRNA technology. It was going to be the brave new future of medicine. It was um, all you have to do is now that you've got the mRNA device, um, you just re reprogram the computer with yeah. different symptoms. and Create a new protein or molecule or whatever. Not, um, vaccines. Mm. And, you know, I think a lot of people have been caught up with that and thinking that this is the brave new world of science um, and that, you know, we're going to be able to fix all um, human ailments and afflictions with vaccines. Um, so I think, and and the, the DNA research, um, uh, I find the whole... Uh, as I said, I don't really want to get into no, transhumanism because no, we, we, we I'm, I'm not, don't have to. I'm not an expert, but so. I think that the people who are doing some of that kind of research um, have, you know, some scary ideas and, you know, like, oh, well, humans haven't, haven't really been uh, good um, uh, environmental managers of the planet. Pathogens on the planet, on the on the entity that is the the planet, the body that is the planet. Yes, um, and that you know, but by so I think this whole idea that you know these new developments in biotechnology are you know representative of our brave new world. So why are we afraid of them? Why why are we um, concerned about? We don't need to be concerned about genetic engineering anymore. Well, I was just going to say, we don't tolerate GMO crops so well, do we? Um, I remember when Helen Clark was called out on that years ago. It, was a, it almost sunk her chances at the election, I think. Yes. Um, but it's okay. It's okay to screw around with a human being. Yes. Now, no, I, um, I mean, you'd, you'd have to be pretty dumb to ignore the fact that um, there is, you know, an, uh, a vast amount of money to be made in the kind of medicalization of gender that we're seeing so all the hormone products the um you know the fact that the people who transition like this they're going to be on medications for the rest of their lives to maintain it um the you know the huge resources and surgeries and all of this stuff you'd you'd have to be um you know pretty naive not to see that there's um big financial um, well, the cash, the cash register is ringing in my head right now over and over again. And all of that. But, ching, but ching. I think that people who are unconcerned about genetic research, which is basically, you know, messing about with our, our DNA, um, you know, might want to have an increased pool of, um, uh, of people who are transitioning um, to study what happens when, when you do this. Lab rats. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you you learn you learn more about um, you know about uh, what happens to the human body with these processes. Mm. Um, it's basically you know what research is, and I don't think I mean I I don't. Isn't that what the Germans did? The German doctors did in the thirties and forties. 
Well, they were certainly um, trying to do some things that bear some similarity, but um, I, mean, I, don't, I don't think anybody wants to discriminate or to deny somebody who wants to make these kind of gender transitions. No. You know, if, they, if they want to do stuff, you know, to their own bodies and um, and they really have a perception of identity that they want to be something different. Um, but let not that um, and those people, you know, their right to do that and to be whatever they want to be, let that not um, blind us to the concerns um, that are associated with that, like, you know, biological men basically, you know, competing in women's sports, um, whether, you know, women should be allowed um, women's changing rooms, um, you know, all, all that sort of stuff goes with it. And and I don't know why we can't have a debate about um, <clears throat> why trans rights should supersede other rights. No. You know, and the, these are all the, you know, the complexities of these kind of um, social norms, you know, that, that we're talking about. So... Back to the uh, seminar, um, and uh, you know, people did their presentations, and you've kind of described that. What was your sense of the audience or the attendees' reaction? Did you get to chat to any? Um, I did. Yeah, I did, and um, I was. I have to say, I was surprised at the level of ignorance um, amongst some of the people I talked to. I talked to. One person who, um, you know, we were starting to talk about um, uh, the um, the vaccine issues, anti-vaxxers and what have you, and um, and I said something about mRNA, and this woman said to me, "What's that?" And this is somebody who's working in the health system in the health area. You're kidding did me. Not, did not know the difference between the Pfizer mRNA, you know, novel technology genetic product and traditional vaccines. And that, I, that's stunning. That's stunning. So I had to explain to her that traditional vaccines had been, um, you know, that prior to um, 2020 vaccines uh, were understood by most people to provide sterilising immunity. You had a vaccine and then you didn't get the disease and now we're being educated that oh it actually it, you know it only lasts three months and you have to keep topping up your immune system like a petrol tank which contradicts um, every part of the sales message by the way every bit <laughs> yes um and there were a couple of people there from the new zealand blood service and i was asking them uh they were talking about the um the baby will case um in auckland and um, so I asked the question, um, well, what, what, what was it that the parents were actually concerned about, about, unvac about uh, vaccinated blood? Um, and their response was, um, oh, well, we never really found out, you know. Because oh, crikey, these people, man. These people were being, you know, manipulated by these conspiracy theorists and what have you and, um, you know, and and, and these so, are the blood people. <laughs> these, are, these are the people from the blood service. Oh, yeah. crikey! Um, and then one person uh, from that organisation did say something about um, 
uh, oh, you know, these people have been told that um, the spike protein lasts, you know, longer in your in your system. Um, and, you know, but we know, uh, you know, it, it's all dissipated within two, two weeks. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. The stunning um, level of ignorance, that, that, that is mind-blowing. Um, um, well, it, it was kind of part of the, um, the, the group think was entirely passive. That's what I was concerned about. Um, there was no questioning of what was being said. There was no questioning of the rightness of all the COVID measures. There was no questioning about the vaccine. I hate to call it a vaccine because it's not, but about the... Well, that was the genius thing, calling it a vaccine. Well, yes, of course. Because of people course. couldn't separate out their, their, you know, the historical meaning from the new meaning and yeah. just made an assumption on no information, including people in the health service. Yeah. <laughs> turned out. Um, but I also um, was surprised at the lack of reaction to some of the bizarre things that um, Kate Hannah had to say, for example. Um, I mean, she's totally captured with this idea that um, everything is about white supremacy. And if, if you're looking at, she, you know, she refers to herself as a social historian, but if you're looking at history through a very defined lens that um, all of New Zealand's um, history um, institutions and, um, and all of that, um, is is all through a lens of what she calls the imperialist project. Um, so this is all linking to the, you know, um, we're a colonialist country and colonialism is bad and everything about. Well, she's done pretty well. <laughs> so it hasn't it hasn't held her well, back, has it? Oh uh, well, I I don't want to make any. Okay, well I'll say it because it's obvious. It's a good standard of living, good job, well paid, academic. Sure. You know, um, some people in other parts of the world would struggle like crazy to get to that. Yes, but um, again, I, I think, you know, in a way she has lost the ability to um, apply any kind of critical analysis to what she's saying um, because some of what she's saying is, is so bizarre that you, you just really wonder, um, you know, what, what is the purpose of that and what's going on? For example, in that, um, <clears throat> I'm not sure whether it was Fire and Fury or, or the Web of Chaos documentary that was also on TV, but at one point, you know, she was saying that we have to be very careful about uh, looking at websites that, that are about what she calls trad wife things. I didn't even know there was that term. Um it's like white cis males I had to learn about. <laughs> white oh, okay. cis males. Are, um, You're talking to one. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, so she made the point that we had have to be very concerned about um, websites, you know, that are involving women who are, uh, you know, focusing on things like healthy food for their children and knitting and crochet and all of this. That's and, right, yeah. And, um, and talked about, you know, when you see videos of, um, you know, blonde children with beautifully braided hair, you know, you have to sort of look for the white supremacy aspects. Um, Boy, what a twisted that. way of looking at the world. And in the um, 
uh, disinformation seminar, she talked about this again and used the phrase deification of blonde and red-haired women and children. Okay. What, <laughs> what, what is this about? There's something going on there. Well, <laughs> there's definitely something uh, going on there. But, but, again, I think it gets back to um, the point that I made before about, you know, if you if you start to generate these sort of outrageous kind of statements and then, you know, the group think it doesn't challenge it, um, then it gets, you know, more and more bizarre and that seems to be what's happening. And then you get the kind of community hysteria that I was talking about. And I, I think a good analogy for what's happening now um, with this misinformation, disinformation stuff is the McCarthy era, McCarthyism yeah. in yeah. the States where, you know, everybody who, you know, had any kind of, um, left-leaning um, socialist kind of um, interests or associations was, you know, all the reds under the bed stuff, or, you know, all of that. So, you know, if you could be tagged with that, you were an enemy of the state, um, you know, all those all those sorts of things. And, and these tactics actually are very, um, uh, very typically associated with a move towards totalitarianism yeah, and totalitarian agents, and we've—I've worked—I've worked in ex-Soviet countries, so I, I know a lot about that. Um, you know, and it—it it really concerns me to see this um, creeping uh, overreach of officialdom and creeping censorship oh. in our society. Wow. <laughs> that was that was amazing to hear what you had to say. Um, Catherine Ennis Carter, that was that was brilliant. Thank you for taking that extended time to take us through that. Absolutely fascinating. So much to go away and think about, I know. Well, thank you very much for having me on. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> okay. Maybe we'll talk again soon, okay? All right. Thanks, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.